Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spark Podcast, where we discuss the work that ignites real and lasting change. I'm Andrew Levanway, and I lead the Disaster Management Division here at ICF. And today I'm sitting down with Marco Bourne, who's joining our team following a distinguished career in both the public and private sector. From Hurricane Katrina to Superstorm Sandy to the storms of 2017, he's seen it all. traveled, uh, if not a lot of the same ground, at least a lot of, of ground that's been pretty close. So, you know, if you start way back at the Pennsylvania Fire Services Institute and you carry forward to today, what, what's changed? You know, what are the things that really stand as haven't changed to you? I think some of the biggest things is the awareness across the country of the risks, um, whether it's natural hazards or, or, or other hazards, has really increased. The focus on the first responder community, the emergency management community, but more importantly, survivors of disasters. They used to be called victims, and really it's about survivors and having them have the tools they need to recover more quickly. Um, that's been a huge change. Uh, the national focus on this has gotten much more intense. Yeah. But coming from the FEMA world, mm-hmm. having been one of the top two or three folks at FEMA, and we look now at how they're responding to the increasing numbers of increasingly costly disasters. What can we do more to support them? Really, in many respects, it's understanding what FEMA's role is versus the role that the state and local governments have to play. Um, More and more state and local governments are being asked to take on a broader responsibility. FEMA's there to support them and provide financial assistance and, and equipment and things like that when the states need it. Um, But they're also starting to ask the states to really manage their own disasters using the federal money. And that's something that is a big change because what a lot of folks don't understand is that FEMA is not a first responder, never has been. Um, It's they're thought of in the media as being a first responder. But uh, the notion really is is that the state and locals are where 80 to 90 percent of all the work gets done. That's who manages everything from the local emergency response to the long-term disaster relief. How we and the industry and um, the emergency management community can assist them in building their own capabilities so that they have the ability to manage um, what are, quite frankly, much larger disasters, much uh, more costly disasters, is really important. And that's where um, they need help, and that's where they're looking for assistance. They're looking for the best practices. Um, FEMA will always be in a very awkward role. And uh, they recognize the fact that they have to help the states build capacity. And so that's really where they're headed. And I think it's actually healthy because it returns us more to a model that used to exist many years ago where um, the federal government's providing assistance, not direction. So you sort of walked the ground at Katrina and you walked the ground at Sandy, right? What, What was the biggest difference between the two? Really, it came down to two things. Um, first of all, the infrastructure of the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area is far more advanced, robust, um, more established. Population centers are, of course, much larger. The challenge with Louisiana was a little bit different. Um, while there were a tremendous number of people affected, the governmental infrastructure basically collapsed around it. You didn't see that in the Northeast during Sandy. Uh, so there had to be a two-part disaster recovery. Recover government's essential functions and then respond to the actual event and help the people. 
Uh, and that's been the biggest difference between the two because that created most of the challenges up front. Uh, what has happened in the Northeast is the recovery has been about how do we rebuild smarter. In the Gulf Coast, it's been how do we rebuild, but how do we encourage folks to return who left? Because over a quarter of a million people left uh, both New Orleans and the immediate parishes and have not come back. And so how do we take those lessons and apply them to Maria and Harvey? And it's really about how quickly re infrastructure can get reestablished, government services can get reestablished, how quickly housing can be uh, made available, whether it's repair of existing facilities and existing homes or whether it's alternative measures. How do you get people to some sense of normalcy in their life? Now, it's not the normal they had before, but it's the normal that they're comfortable enough staying in and, and building from. That's the key to it. That stops economic flight. It stops the flight of people leaving communities. Um, and it allows those communities to be sustainable long term. If you think about the amount of time you spend in government and in the private sector, what's the thing that brings you to ICF? What, what is the thing that you think you can do there? Well, for years, uh, you know, supporting uh, both the federal government side of this, and of course I was in state and local government, so I have that perspective. One of the things about ICF that intrigues me and has always been, I think, one of the biggest strong points about the company is it supports state and locals, not just the federal government, you know, not just commercial, but everyone who's a player, a stakeholder in this, in this entire world. I miss the state and local part of it. I'd spent far too many years supporting the federal side of the right. equation, which is rewarding and wonderful, but I miss the folks that I used to work with every day. You know, I've been a firefighter and a police officer. You know, I've been in this for about 35 years, and those are the folks I most identify with. You know, my federal time was wonderful, but it's really a function of who's the ones actually affected and who can actually make a real positive change. It's the state and local folks. And so ICF just is that perfect avenue uh, because you've got a long history of working with state and locals and want to continue and grow that, that support. And it's definitely the right place to be. And I'm glad you bring up the fire service, right? It's, I always mm -hmm. tell people that the, the most important lessons in leadership I ever learned, I learned at the fire service. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you go back and, and think about those times, you know, when you were you know, wearing a yellow hat and rolling up hose, what are, the, what are the things that you think you learned in the fire service that you bring to the job now? The, 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 the quickest and most uh, uh, important lesson was teamwork. Fire service operates on teamwork. They're not a bunch of individuals. Um, there is no lone ranger activity. You rely on the person next to you and the next person in that team because your life will depend on it, but because the actual work required requires a team. Um, that's really true of both disaster work as well. Um, there is no single entity that can do everything. It is always about how do you get the best of everybody to work together in order to solve a problem. And the fire service taught me that. The fire service taught me about how to organize um, operations. The incident command system, which is uh, the core of what the fire service created you know, back in the 70s, is now the basis of the national incident management system. There was a reason for that. It's because it's all about teamwork and multidisciplinary teamwork. And uh, that's those two lessons, I think, actually translate really well into business as well, uh, the same way. Uh, it's about teamwork. No, I think, I think that's, those are, great, those are great examples, right? I think the other one is the idea of span of control. Yep. 
that, that if, once you get beyond six, the reality that you're actually controlling the situation is just an illusion. And that, and I think they always had a great perspective on how you train, mm -hmm. right? Tell me, show me, give me an example. Yeah. And walking out of that, it seemed like a better model to help people actually know how to do things as opposed to just pretending you're trained. It is. And, and how do you evaluate that, you know, the, the operations after it? How do you learn from that and, and drive it back into training and exercises that improve the system at large? Uh, how many, th you know, almost everything we do in life we should be thinking in those terms uh, because that's how we continuously improve. Now, this is great. So one of the things I also think is interesting is that We've seen so many industries disrupted. Mm -hmm. right? We've seen uh, transportation disrupted. We've seen, obviously, uh, uh, retail absolutely rethought. One of the places where we've seen sort of slow to transition to a more disruptive thing is in disaster management. Mm -hmm. So if we think about all the digital opportunities mapped to the realities of that mission, where are the places you think that we're going to see disruption in them? I think a lot of it is around how technology is used to understand the risk problem, how it is used to affect quicker recovery, um, advanced analytics to really understand what the problem is beforehand or what the conditions are beforehand, uh, and where the failure points can be. Uh, and then during uh, events, understanding situational awareness, whether it's you know culling social media in a much more advanced way to understand trends and activities, uh, whether it's understanding the operational ability of the private sector to move resources. Right. You know, the biggest challenge in a disaster in any community is not just the government functioning. It's actually the industries that support, the businesses that support that community. The sooner they are restored or at least able to access and reopen, the quicker the economic viability of that community is restored. Right. The tears to the that community fabric is, um, uh, you know, yeah. I think is under-discussed, right? That the way that the, the disaster not only reshapes the solid infrastructure, mm -hmm. but what it does to the actual fabric of the community and the relationships between the community leaders and the government mm -hmm. is absolutely understudied and underunderstood. Oh, it is, because what do people what do people most worry about? First, they worry about the safety of themselves and their family. The second thing that enters their mind is, do I have a job to go to? How am I going to earn money? That becomes the next big thing, not just am I safe and do I have a place that's safe now to stay. It's how do I continue to earn money so I can continue to eat and right. I can support my family. That immediately turns the focus to the industry that supports the community, supporting jobs. It's also paying taxes to the local communities, um, which are driving the ability of local government to even function. You know, the, the biggest challenge with any community, and there were studies done uh, back about 20 years ago, Communities whose largest employer is closed or out of work because of a disaster for more than 60 days, there's a 75% chance that community is going to fail. And it's all about the economics. Yeah. And government relies on the economics, business relies on it, and individuals, they want to know that they've got that paycheck coming. And so everything we do to support state and local governments or others in figuring out how to quickly restore those services actually aids and speeds their recovery and gets them to a point where those communities are viable in the future. So you can't rebuild the roads and not rebuild the employers. Exactly. So I want to come back to the, what you mentioned about analytics. So I yeah. think it's a it's an important discussion that we missed a lot of. Is that Katrina, Sandy, storms of 2017 
should have thrown off a vast amount of data that we should be using for things like mitigation planning. Mm -hmm. So how do we get a better handle on that data? And how do we make sure that the systems we're building going into 2019, 2020, are actually collecting that data in a more viable, valuable way? Well, part of it is um, harnessing the data that's been initially, that's, that's been gathered already. Whether it's state or locals or FEMA, there's vast quantities of data. It sits in multiple, multiple different systems, yeah. some of which are connected, most of which are not. Um, and there's no good way, uh, at least nobody's really sharing that data in a way where um, it doesn't require a tremendous amount of effort to consolidate it. It's not that you have to put all that data in one database. Right. It's how you get access to the data you need. Not that it, you're going to change the data, but how do you use the data? And then what kind of tools are you looking at? What are you trying to solve? Are you trying to look at the risk problem and understand that better? Are you trying to look at the vulnerability issues? Um, or what's the sustainability? Um, those are the questions that have to be asked, and the data scientists know how to ask those. They know how to form those into actual queries of that data. There's tremendous tools now that are being developed uh, to understand how to use the data and actually get good answers out of it. But it requires a marriage of those that understand the mission, the risk, um, with the folks that actually understand the, the science of data analytics. That's right. The tools become almost just the final piece that says, this is how I get it. And that's a, that's a great segue to my next question, right, which is gut feel. Mm -hmm. How much of that is a technology problem? How much of that is a mission problem? And how much of that is a management problem? Just gut feel. Gut feel, it's probably mostly a management problem. Um, the mission is the mission is largely understood by most. Um, the ways to go about achieving mission is where you get the get get the divergence. Yeah. Okay. The technology will always be you'll always be able to develop and pull in technology. Yeah. Technology is constantly changing. Today's great idea is tomorrow's antiquated idea, yeah. but there's always the next one. Um, the key, it seems to me, is the management and understanding of that mission and how technology can enable it yeah. and, and enhance it is more important than technology for technology's sake. So now you're the you have the chance to provide the guidance to the manager, mm -hmm. and they want to become they have the desire to be more data literate. They have the desire to actually break down those walls mm -hmm. and query correctly from the systems. You get three pieces of advice. Uh, the first one is don't think of the data as your own you, that you own that data. Yeah, a husbanding data like that um, and, and fearing the uh, democratization of it, I'll just use that term, right. is, is, one, is the biggest mistake they make. Um, the second is learn to share your data in exchange for others. Uh, build that network uh, of understanding where those data points are, where all that information is. And the third thing is be open to ideas on how to analyze it. Um, don't just think in terms of, of, of discrete program needs. Think in terms of how you can extrapolate that across broader problems. That's right, because it seems like it's it's not the individual data sets that are adding the greatest amount of value. It's the mashup of the various different kinds of data that we're really starting to pay off. It is. There's great examples of this. You know, There is a tremendous amount of data that sits in what's called the National Fire Data Incident Reporting System. Okay. That literally tracks almost every single time a fire department rolls a truck okay. to an event doesn't matter whether it's a car crash or emergency. That data is completely siloed off and never used to understand community risk 
because those fire department vehicles are also running with police vehicles. They're running to events that are both natural hazard as well as man-made. That is part of your risk equation when you're looking at a community risk model. It's not used now for that. Yeah. It's used purely That's for the silo that it, it was designed for. Absolutely a great point, right? I mean, one of the things they were looking at when they were studying opioids mm -hmm. and the spread of opioids was that they were looking at overdose data in California, and there was no single code for heroin overdose. No. And so they vastly underreported what had been happening over the last 10 years. And when they had gone through and actually mapped the correct codes to what had happened, they realized not that there was a possible epidemic, but the epidemic started 10 years ago, yeah. and by then was out of control. Absolutely. And that, we're going to see that same kind of, of um, enlightenment, so to speak. If we start taking that fire data, the police data, the emergency management stuff that's being done through hazard mitigation data gathering, or just the disaster response data, I don't need to know who the individuals are. I need to know how many of them and where and what was the conditions that they were in. That helps to broaden that, that understanding of the risk in a, in a broader community. And stop looking at it necessarily from purely state perspective, but start looking at it from a micro-regional perspective because that's where the events have the most impact. And then watching that against something like CDC's social determinants of health, right, to right. understand hey, in communities that we're going to rebuild, what are the socioeconomic factors that mm -hmm. might be hampering that redevelopment versus what might be a community that otherwise is reasonable functioning that just needs funding? In a lot of cases, there's an old adage that basically says the ability for a community to recover is predetermined by their condition prior to the disaster. Yeah. And the more we understand that, the more programs can get tailored to actually address the community's problems in recovery as opposed to just what happened to them. Yeah. Because their their existing precondition determines how how well they're going to do. Yeah. Because if their infrastructure is broken to begin with, they're gonna have a hard time doing it anyway. One of the one of the interesting findings of of the GAO report is uh, for the community development block grant disaster recovery, mm -hmm. there had been a hundred and twenty 20 disasters they responded to with 61 independent declarations. Mm -hmm. Each one had its own set of rules. Mm -hmm. So if you're a if you're a state and local government official, how do you navigate that level of complexity? That's part of the problem. Um, that complexity doesn't need to exist, but unfortunately it does. Right. Uh, and that's really understanding that you need to have folks, whether it's on your staff or whether you bring folks in to, to assist that understand the various complexities of these programs and how they change on any given year. Congress constantly makes changes to the appropriations bills which change the way HUD or anybody else manages the money that they're given in that particular fiscal year. Understanding those changes is almost half the battle um, and because all of the federal money comes with multiple strings attached. And so it's really important to, to understand that. Secondly, if I'm a local or state elected official, one of the things that I'm going to be pushing for is streamlining. The idea that if there are multiple programs, allow me to understand and manage those in concert with one another. Don't make me do a completely you know, uh, narrow set of rules on one and not be able to understand how the other can help support both projects. Because ultimately, when it comes to um, all of the money that's provided by the federal government, 
It's augmented by money that the states put into it. It's augmented by the money they get from the nonprofit communities or foundations or other charitable organizations. They have to have a much more holistic way of managing that money, whether it's at the community level or at the state level, because not every challenge requires the same hammer. It's, it's, it's a great point, and you think the the discipline of emergency management, especially for a state and local emergency manager, has changed so substantially over the last 10, 15 years. Right? So it is, what, what now should an emergency manager be prioritizing, right? Because in most cases, the communities aren't looking to put more money into emergency management, although they should. Mm-hmm. What are those, what, how should they spend their time? What are the things that they should be focused on in the context of the complexity of the federal response scenarios? A lot of it is relationship building um, that exists that they need to have a very strong thread to within their community and not just the normal people, right. not just the ones they work. Everybody, they all work with the fire chief and police chief, et cetera. They all work with the public works director in some case they are. Um, they have to be actually much more open. There are community leaders that actually drive real action, and none of them are necessarily in established organizations. Um, there's, a, there's a notion called social capital. And social capital is when there are non-traditional community leaders that actually influence actions, although they're not necessarily part of you know, the Red Cross or some right. other formalized right. entity. Finding those people and understanding how to draw them into the dialogue ahead of disasters about how they can be part of that. The second thing I think a lot uh, a local emergency manager really has to understand is learn that you don't actually have to be the expert in everything, but find the experts to help you uh, because they do exist and be willing to, to listen and take that advice. And finally, um, get smart about the programs that are coming down the road. Uh, state and local governments are going to be asked increasingly because of the changes to federal grant rules around disaster relief to do more. They're being given resources as part of that to do more, but they're actually going to take on even more and more of that responsibility and getting smart about what that responsibility entails and not necessarily cringing from it, but embrace it and say, okay, this is not only an avenue for me to learn and get expertise, it's also an avenue for me to advocate for help. And the the National Emergency Manager Association is a great great venue for that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it is. You know, um, NEMA's as an organization um, is a, an organization of the state directors more than anything else. The states are still the primary grantees for all federal assistance, um, so they have a tremendous amount of influence over how the money gets used, or quite frankly, how the programs are designed. Uh, FEMA's in partnership, and a lot of times with NEMA because. Um, there's a lot of give and take on whether or not the programs are, are effective or not. That's a great, that's a great um, segue. So one of the things we learned in, in 2017 with the whole series of storms followed by the wildfires was that the ability of the National Emergency Workforce to respond to three, maybe three and a half large scale just wasn't there. There just weren't enough bodies. Yeah. So I guess there's two questions, right? One is, how do we increase the size of that workforce? And two, how do we increase the professionalism of that workforce? Well, the size is certainly um, based a lot, largely on how many folks really want to get involved in that as a yeah. career. Thankfully, there are a number of universities now around the country with, uh, with emergency management degree programs, both at the uh, bachelor's, master's levels. Um, that's good because it's, they are starting to churn out a lot of folks that want to be in this profession. 
but more importantly, encouraging um, through training and education more advanced skills. Um, that's being done through some of the national academies, some of the other universities that are part of uh, the Homeland Security Consortium. Those are all providing avenues for folks. Finally, it's really around understanding that the workforce is not entirely always going to be government. Um, it can't be because communities don't have disasters every day. Some do. Most don't. Uh, and so that workforce has to be very flexible and has to be available. Uh, and as it grows, it's a combination of public and private partnership in order to get it done. Uh, because not everybody has to be a pure emergency management planner. They also need people who really understand data. They really need people who understand finance. Those are just those are very um, uh, broad skills which are available in abundance. But they don't necessarily gravitate toward emergency management because they've never actually been welcomed in. Now they are being welcomed in, and that's going to change that workforce significantly. Well, this has been sort of a, a very broad ranging conversation, mm -hmm. but if, if we think about that as the context, mm -hmm. where do we think? ICF is going to provide the greatest amount of value both to our state and local partners as well as to our federal partners? Well, I think one of the things is really the understanding that um, managing any, any disaster is a function of understanding where all the resources are and how to best utilize them. ICF's well positioned to do that, uh, whether it's working directly for the federal agencies that are providing some of the, the funding, uh, but also understanding how that funding is supposed to be used. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's about uh, incorporating ICF's understanding of both the private sector community, the commercial world, the, um, the technology world, into how to make recovery uh, much more robust, how to make response uh, much more effective, and ultimately, how do we help these communities really understand resilience? What does resilience really mean? Um, and, how to, and how to affect the, the community in a way where the next series of disasters don't have the effects that maybe prior ones did. Absolutely right. The, the, we didn't have a chance much to get into the discussion around sort of partly the story around mitigation and then the tie between mitigation and resilience. But I think that's a, a great handoff to our next opportunity to talk with Absolutely. the other parties inside of ICF because any story about response, any story about recovery has to include the story of resilience. Absolutely does. Great. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. You too.